All right, good morning. Good to be with you. I'm trying to think of how old I was. I'm not exactly sure. Somewhere probably between the age of 10 and 12. When I was the only one home with my mom, my, my dad and my brothers were gone, and she had ordered some pizza, and she said, if I'm still upstairs when the pizza comes, there's money on the counter, give it to the pizza man, get the pizza. Now, you should know that this is my first experience ever, like, paying the pizza man. So I've never done this before, and so the, the, the doorbell rings, or the door knocks, whatever, or the door doesn't knock, someone knocks on the door, and, uh, and so the pizza man comes in, I give him the money. Now, because my only experience, like, paying for things were, like, at stores where if you pay more than... They say you have a 20 and it was like $16, you know, you get $4 back, right? That's, you don't like, just like keep the extra money. And so I give the guy the 20 and he gives me the pizza. And then he says, would you like any change? And I'm thinking, that's a weird question. Why would you keep the money? And so I'm like, yes, I would. And then he says, how much? And I'm like, what? How, what? And so I'm standing there and I'm like, okay, I, I, he wants me to like do the math on this. And so I'm trying to think, like carry the one, whatever. It was like 30 seconds. It was so awkward. And I was, I don't know what it was. Let's just say it was like 257, right? So it was the exact amount. I give you a 20, didn't cost 20 bucks. And so I say 257, whatever. And he looks at me and he's like, uh, okay. And so he like gives me the change and he leaves, whatever. Mom comes downstairs and I said, hey, there's a, uh, mom, there's the, the change is on the counter. And she said, um, what do you mean change? I said, yeah, I gave him more than he would. He's like, she's like, well, that was supposed to be his tip. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Like, I felt so bad. I'm, it still haunts me today whenever I think about it. So just on the off chance that the pizza guy is listening to this message, 302 Sorgate Drive, Carrie, like 18 years ago, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive for goodness. But what's so hard about it is once I figured out I did something wrong, I couldn't even do anything about the situation, right? It was gone. There's nothing I could do about it. And I share that story because we're going to look at this question this morning, and that's this. What is Jesus's hardest teaching to follow. And that story will be relevant here in a second, but I want to ask you this. What do you think it is? Now, there could be a number of ways we answer that question. It could be the Christian sexual ethic. It could be this idea of maybe forgiving people. Like, that's hard. Someone wrongs you, giving someone forgiveness. That could be difficult. It could be that Jesus is calling us to be generous, like financially or with our time, and maybe we don't always want to do that. There's a lot of things that we could say that can be difficult at times. However, I don't think any one of those is actually the hardest teaching of Jesus or of the New Testament or of Christianity. Uh, instead, today, we're look, going to look at what I believe uh, is the actual answer to that question. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, page 1014 in those black Bibles. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. That is our gift to you. Uh, we are back in our Masterclass series. If you've been with us this year, we started this year in 1 Corinthians. We took a break for Easter, and we just finished up a short series. So now we're back, and so this is what I affectionately call Semester 2. So welcome to Semester 2. If you're like, what does Masterclass even mean? We are looking through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, written by this guy named Paul within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He writes this letter to this church in Corinth that he was familiar with, uh, familiar with which is in modern-day Greece. And what's interesting about this letter is he's basically giving us all the different ways that the gospel actually speaks into our life. And so all these different scenarios. So really, this, this letter, this book, is kind of like a Masterclass on life. It shows us how the gospel impacts every area of our life. And so we're picking up today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you were with us before Easter and you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was a lovely chapter talking about how a guy in the church was sleeping with his stepmother, so that's fun. Uh, but the problem was, it was not just the sin of what he was doing. The bigger issue was that this man who claimed to be a follower of Christ and was part of the church was in continual unrepentant sin, like he was like, it doesn't matter. But also the church did nothing with it. They, they also didn't address the situation. And so Paul's saying, look, it's not good for that man and it's not good for the church if we 
don't pretend like nothing matters, that we have to call each other to follow Jesus, not in a guilt way, not in a condemning way, but so that we can experience the love and grace of Christ. And so that's the background that we open up chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and here is what Paul writes. He says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And so again, last chapter, he was talking about how the church is supposed to handle moral issues among believers. But by extension, what he's saying here is this, that if possible, whenever there's an issue that comes uh, uh, between two believers in the church, that you should do what you can do to reconcile, to give grace and forgiveness among each other before you bring it to people who do not believe what you believe about Jesus, about love, and about grace. Now, the backdrop of this, if you're familiar at all with the Jewish system, they had what was called the Sanhedrin. And so the Jews, whenever they had issues, Instead of going to the Roman government, uh, they would go amongst themselves before they would go to the Roman officials. And so they had their religious leaders that kind of mediated when they were issues. And so there were some things that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, were not allowed to adjudicate on, but everything else that they could, they tried to keep it in house. And so what Paul is saying, look, if somebody has hurt you or somebody has wronged you in the church, what you should do is pursue forgiveness and grace and mediation among yourselves. And so I want to say this real quick, uh, real quick this morning, that I am speaking in generalities here. We are not talking about issues that we need to get legal or otherwise counsel involved. If there's an abusive situation, maybe you started a business with somebody and they stole thousands and thousands of dollars for you. There are times where not only is it a good idea, but it is absolutely necessary to get outside parties involved. We're not talking about those. Instead, we're talking about the kind of times where we hurt each other, where we say things to one another. What does it look like for us to keep it in-house to try to give each other grace, love, and forgiveness? And here's why Paul encourages us to do that. Verse 2, he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this Life. What he's saying here, and we're not going to get into it this morning, but he's basically saying this, that if followers of Christ, if believers, if saints, if you're a follower of Christ, that is you, uh, will take part in the end time judgment. So when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world, those who are in Christ will in somehow in some way actually take part in that judgment where they judge the world and even the angels in some way. And so Paul is saying, look, if we're going to take part in that, can we not find a way to help encourage and bring forgiveness and grace to everyday trivial matters among each other? Now, here's what's interesting to me about what Paul is saying here, is if you notice, here's what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I can't believe you guys have hurt one another. Stop hurting one another. That is wrong. Instead, he works off the assumption that because we are all sinful, all fall short, that we will wrong each other. So here's just what I want us to know real quick as we look at this text, right? Now, this might be revolutionary to you. You might say, no doubt of this, but here's what we need to know, that you will be wrong. If you are a follower of Christ, even within the church, somebody will wrong you. So we should not be shocked by it. Now, of course, if we love Jesus and if we follow Jesus, our goal is to try to keep the hurt that we have to one another to, to a minimal capacity, but it still will happen. Why? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not follow Jesus because you have it all together, because you're perfect. You follow Jesus because you have admitted that you need grace, forgiveness, and mercy. So that means that you will mess up. One of the things that I've noticed that's been interesting to me is that I've often found that those who are brand new believers or believers who are younger will be very hurt, and understandably so, so I'm not saying this, when, when somebody in the church says something mean or hurtful against them. They, they say, I can't believe they did that. And what I want to say is, yes, that should hurt us. Yes, it is not okay. But we should not be shocked when it happens because we're all messed up. 
right? What's more important is how we respond to it. Like I think of recently, I was, uh, I was overhearing a conversation between a Christian and non-Christian uh, people that I know, and the non-believer was talking to the believer, and she was saying that, you know, one of the reasons that she, one of her issues with the church is the people, that they're hypocrites, that they're judgmental, that they're just, they're not good people, and she, she and her friends talk about it all the time. And whenever I hear that, I want to say, A, first of all, if you have been hurt by the church, that is a serious thing, and I want to say, I am sorry. But what I always want to respond when people say, well, I'm not a part of a church, I don't believe in God because the people hypocrites, I want to be like, no, duh, that's why we follow Jesus. And if you find a church that is perfect, you better not go because you're going to screw it up. And so I'm going to be like, don't, that's good, like, don't go then, right? And so, so that shouldn't surprise, now, of course, it should it should grieve us. We should pursue love and grace when we can, but we should not be shocked when it happens because you will be wrong. If you're a partner here at New City Church, if you call New City Church home, guess what? Somebody will hurt you. You will also hurt somebody. I might even say or do something to you at some point that is wrong. And I, so I want to say, I'm sorry, but we should not be shocked by it. What's important is not that we, be, that we are wrong, but what we do with it. And so Paul continues by saying this in verse 4. He says, so if you have such matters, and I would so be bold as to say when, right, when we have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, there's a little bit of irony when Paul says in verse 5, is there not one wise person among you? If you think back, if you were here when we started the series in chapter 1 and chapter 2, one of the issues with the Corinthians is they were acting like they were wise, that they knew everything. And Paul's like, no, 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 you don't. So now he's saying, now you're having issues, and you claim to be wise. Shouldn't you be able to, if you're so wise, do something with it? And so, but the bigger point here is Paul simply saying this, why are you bringing these things to people who do not believe what you believe? In other words, he's saying, listen, this whole Christianity thing, this whole Jesus movement is, again, 20 years or less in the making. Everybody is somewhat familiar with what's going on. They know that we claim that Jesus came and like resurrected from the dead and it gives us grace and forgiveness and mercy. And if that's true, and yet every time somebody wrongs us, we're going to other people just like those who do not know Jesus, they will begin to question what is so different about these people anyway? So he's saying part of the reason why we need to keep this in-house is, A, if we actually uh, do love each other like we say we love each other and have experienced God's grace, then we should be able to uh, give each other grace. But also, what does it say to those who do not know Jesus if we claim to follow Jesus but act no differently than those who don't? And so here is why you and I need to know uh, that, that, that we will experience wrongdoing. Here's why. Because how you respond to wrongdoing matters. It's not just that you will be wrong. It's how you respond that actually shows what you actually believe. Again, what happens, especially in our culture today, whenever somebody wrongs us, we kind of feel like it's free license to behave and do whatever we want because they started it and it's their fault. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you actually believe this Jesus thing, if you've actually experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus, then how you respond will actually show and reveal what you believe about Jesus and what he has done for you. I remember in college, I had a friend uh, who was a Christian at that time, but did not grow up in a, in a good home. He was not a believer growing up. And he said his parents fought all the time. Like there wasn't any abuse, but they're always yelling and screaming. And it was just bad. And it was ugly happening all the time. And he said, one time I was, uh, I think he was at a sleepover at a friend's house and his friend was a Christian. His family was Christians. They went to church, all that sort of thing. And he said, towards the end of din- uh, end, uh, towards the end at dinner, or of dinner, however you say it, I don't know, uh, dinner was almost over, right? And he said her, his friend's parents, Christians, nice couple, started to argue. 
And so they kind of leave and go upstairs or go wherever because it was kind of awkward. But to him, he's like, to me, I'm like, well, this happens everywhere. Like, that's just a normal thing. Everybody argues. Everybody fights. No big deal. He said later in the evening, they went back in the living room where his parents are or something like that. Basically, he was near their parents, and his, and his friend's parents were talking as if everything was okay, that they had apologized to one another, that they had forgiven each other, and they had moved on, and they had moved past it, and they were, their relationship was totally fine. And he said, in that moment, I had no category for what that was. I had never seen a husband and a wife forgive each other, give each other grace. He said, what surprised me was not that they fought, because everybody fought, but what I couldn't understand is how they actually moved past it. Like, how do they actually give grace and forgiveness, which again shows us how we respond to wrongdoing matters. Listen, you will be hurt. You will hurt people. How we respond reveals what we actually believe, or you could put it this way, right? How you handle conflict says as much about you as the one who wronged you. And again, in our culture today, it's like, no, 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 if you do something to me, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to, I'm going to pay you back. I'm, going to, like, I'm not going to let this slide. That's weak. I'm not going to let you do it. But we just need to know, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, how you handle when people wrong you, how you handle conflict says as much about you, what you actually believe, what you actually trust as the one who wrongs you. Listen, we're in a culture today where everyone says they want to love each other, which is great, until someone actually hurts them, right? Everybody is a loving person to somebody who loves them, and a, a truly loving person is someone who can love and give grace to people who do not deserve it. And that's what Paul is getting at. And so he continues by saying this in verse 7, and I think this is where it gets really hard for, the, for us who follow Christ. He says, As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why? And this is where it's hard. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. In other words, he's saying this. Listen, if you take this to court to other people, even if you win, you still lose. Why? This is ultimately a bad representation of the gospel. And the gospel, in other words, it is far better to be wronged by somebody than to tarnish the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's actually come to do, right? How we respond, again, shows what we actually believe. And so, again, he's not saying that you should be okay with people hurting you. He's not saying that it doesn't matter, but he's saying if you actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the only one for, to, that can give us salvation, he is God himself who came to give us life, then we need to reflect that to other people so that other people can see and experience Jesus and have Jesus change their life the way Jesus has changed our life. Because what often happens, right, when somebody wrongs you, you want to get them back, right? So, for example, when we were in Guatemala last week, Caitlin, who was some, one of the people on the team with us, I was, I was drinking some water in my water bottle, and she, like, smacks the water bottle and gets water all over me. And so me, being the loving Christian that I am, I took that what was left and dumped it on her, right? <laughs> now, I'm following this text because I didn't bring it before anybody else. We kept it in-house, and we fixed the situation, right? But that's what we want to do, right? Now, listen, I get that's a funny situation, that's a joke, but what, how, that is often our and yours and mine, I think if we're honest, that is our default reaction. You did this to me, I'm going to do something back to you. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's not a reflection of Jesus, it's not a reflection of who he is, and it actually hurts our representation so that other people can see and experience Jesus. And if that's true, here's what I think Paul is telling us to do in this text, and what I believe is probably the hardest teaching of Jesus, and that's this, that you and I are to pursue reconciliation, not restitution. 
Reconciliation, not restitution. Now, reconciliation is not just forgiving somebody and moving on. It is as long as, as much as it depends on you, you pursue grace, forgiveness, and love and reconcile the relationship to the best way possible. This does not necessarily mean that the relationship should not change or things should not be put in place or maybe people need to go separate ways, but before that happens, they need to know that you have loved them, given them grace, that you are not out to pay them back. And if I could just say this this morning, uh, one of the most discouraging things for me as a pastor, and this is not a new city issue, this is a people issue. No matter where we are, we would see this happening. One of the most discouraging things to me is when people come to me, and they're not trying to gossip, they're just letting me know what's going on. They say, hey, this person is saying this about this person, or this is happening with this person, and, and I just want to let you know. Or if somebody is saying this about me, and whatever about me, and I'm going to be clear, like, I don't care, maybe I should more, I don't care if people <laughs> think about me, but what breaks my heart is not, what breaks my heart is that instead of saying, oh, this issue happened, this person was hurt, let's talk about it, let's reconcile. Instead, we're going to talk about other people, we're going to gossip, we're going to do whatever we think we can do to make us feel better about the situation. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Listen, if you love Jesus and have experienced the grace of Jesus, not that it's easy, but when somebody wrongs you, whether you are the one who is offended or the offender, that you and I, to the best of our ability, need to go and have a conversation and reconcile the relationship because that is what ultimately matters. Even if the person doesn't deserve grace, doesn't deserve forgiveness, doesn't deserve reconciliation, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is our call because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Again, here's what Jesus did for us. This will be on the screen. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A few years later, Paul writes this in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come, that God is recreating your life. He's bringing, he's changing your affections towards him. Verse 18, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And not only has he reconciled us, he then says this, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your call, this is my call. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. In other words, reconciliation is exactly what Jesus did. He did not come because you tried really hard or you're a really good person. He came because you have blown it, that you've sinned against a perfect God, that you've shamed God, that you've turned your back against him. And yet in spite of that, instead of seeking restitution, he sought reconciliation, not because we're awesome, but because he is a good and loving God. In other words, God did not respond to us by being passive aggressive, by gossiping, by unfriending us online because somebody said something you didn't like, or by dissolving a friendship. Instead, he reconciled with us, not because we deserved it, because that is who he is. And there's so many examples of this to me when, when people who have actually experienced the reconciling love of God, the hard work of doing this, will actually go and do it with other people. Uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar a few years ago when, when Dylan Roof, who was the white supremacist, racist terrorist who went into the black church in Charleston and, and killed a bunch of people. I think he killed nine people total, hurt another person, left one of the people alive on purpose so that they, that person could tell everybody what happened. You know, big national story, awful, right? And I remember a couple of days later, uh, listening to one of the women who lost a family member in the shooting, talking about how much love and grace and forgiveness she had for Dylan. Now, it's not that he shouldn't receive justice. It's not that what he did didn't matter. But saying things like, listen, I forgive you. I give you grace. I love you because that is what Christ has done for me. I remember watching that. I'm like, this is somebody who's experienced it. 
This is somebody who's experienced and knows that even if she hasn't done something as terrible as Dylan Roof has done, that God has given her grace when she didn't do it. And so to the outside world, she proclaims this same message because she's experienced it in her life. And I remember watching some of the commentators and people like responding to, to what she said because it was so powerful. And one part, a couple people were like, they don't understand. They're like, why would she do that? That makes no sense. Some people were like, that was weak. Some people were like, I don't know. But I've been watching. I'm like, the reason why she did it is not because she's awesome, not because she's a great person. The reason why she did it is because she's experienced what Paul is saying here, that she's experienced the love and grace of Jesus. And so as much as it depends on us, again, it doesn't mean the relationship doesn't change. It's not like she's going to go hang out with this, with this killer. She's not going to do anything like that. But she's going to let him know that I love you, that I care for you, and that I forgive you, not because you deserve it, because Christ has done that for me, and I want you to know that Christ has done that for you. That is why this is so important. And so Paul kind of closes this section that we're reading this morning in verse 9 by saying this. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom, a.k.a. us, those of us who have done things against God? He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, people who find their identity in things of this world, these the people who are sinning, people who are rejecting God and doing whatever they want to do, will not find grace and forgiveness. And then he says this in verse 11. And some of you used to be like this. Now, Paul's a lot nicer than I would have said, because I would have said all of you used to be like this. Like, I know a lot of you. And a lot of you know me. Like, we've all done things that have made us fall short. And so what that means is all of us are are unrighteous. And yet here's what he says in verse 11. He says, and some of you you were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were made holy, not because of you, because of what Jesus came when he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. You were justified, not because of you, that you were given right standing before God because Jesus came and lived a perfect life, gave his life for anyone who would trust and follow him. And so it was by Jesus and the Spirit of God that brings you into a relationship with him. He's not saying that some of you probably still don't struggle with some of these things. I think all of us have issues in our lives of things that we sit, struggles that we go back to from time to time. It's It's not that we're perfect people, but it's that we no longer find our identity in these things, that we are forgiven and given grace, not because we have it all figured out, because Jesus chose to reconcile with us. And so here's why it's important for us to pursue reconciliation, not restitution. Because again, Jesus chose reconciliation for us. Like This is exactly what he did. He did not say, oh, Sam is doing really good today. I think I'm going to give them grace today. No, no, he said, no, no. You don't deserve it, but yet, because I love you, I'm going to come. And here's what's so fascinating to me. In our culture, right, we, we have this idea that you have to be a really good person. And if you're a really good person, then God will forgive you. He's not a reconciling God. He's a get-what-you-deserve God. Uh, two weeks ago when we were in Guatemala, they have that same kind of idea. Um, now, in Guatemala, in Los Chilitos, the village that we are in, there's a very heavy Roman Catholic presence. Some of it's more just cultural, but it's also very heavy. And, and so they have things like you got to buy indulgences, and if your family's in purgatory, you can pay money to get them out. And very much, you have to do the good things. They would say you have to follow God's will. In our culture, we just say you have to be a good person. But you got to do what God tells you to do, or else you're in trouble. And I apologize, because I don't really know how all irrigation and water works. But basically, there are houses in the village that some of them had like these big 
they, like these big plastic barrels and like a spigot on top. And what, what that meant was instead of having to go to the well, and, and, and Los Chalitos is very mountainous, it's very hilly, it's kind of a hard walk, especially if you're older. Uh, instead of having to go to the, to, to the well to draw water, that you could actually pump water in your own home. And so some of the, uh, some of the houses had these, these barrels. Now, they were given, there, given to them by the Catholic Church. And so what had to happen was as long as you went to the church and as long as you did what they said you were gonna, that they wanted you to do, you had water. And so one day, I think it was a Wednesday, we walk into this woman's uh, home, 85 years old. Um, husband died a year ago. Uh, about two or three years ago, they had become followers of Jesus. They got baptized through Los Chilitos, uh, Casa de Libertad, our partner church in Los Chilitos. They'd experienced the gospel. They could actually say who Jesus was and what he did. And so they got baptized. They start following Jesus. Incredible. 85 years old. Again, they get baptized in their, in their early 80s. Again, a year ago, her husband died. And so we were talking about that. Really difficult, really hard. Uh, and because they no longer went to the Catholic church and decided to follow Jesus, they actually shut off her water. No longer gets water. Now, she has some friends and neighbors that kind of help her out, but she's no longer water. What does that say? That if you don't behave, God doesn't love you. And you just need to know that is not what we see all throughout Scripture. That Jesus chose reconciliation not because you figured it all out, because he gave you grace that you didn't deserve, which is why, as a side note, it was so encouraging. And again, if you're part of New City, you know these past few weeks before we left, we kind of collected those self-care bags. We had people donate. Many of you donated. We had a lot of bags. And so it was awesome. As we went to house to house, we had these big plastic bags full of toilet, toiletries and different things. And they weren't very big, but it was such a blessing to say, hey, listen, our church loves you. God loves you. He loves you as you are today, and he wants to change your life. Here's the gospel. Here's what Jesus is. Take this bag. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to do anything. You just need to know that God loves you, that Jesus chose reconciliation for you. That is who he is. And so I want to read one more passage. Uh, it's seven verses. So I'm going to read straight through. It'll be on the screen. This is Romans chapter 12. Um, also written by the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, talking about this idea of reconciliation, what Christ has done for us, maybe a familiar passage with you. Here's what he says. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But, verse 20, here's what he wants us to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Not just forgive him reconcile with him. Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do for him what he does not deserve. For in so doing, you will reap heaping fiery coals on his head. And then it says this in verse 21. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Not retribution, not payback, not bitterness, not gossip, not if you don't do this, I'm not going to do this. You know, conquer evil with Good. Like in other words, reconcile with other people, not because they deserve it, because that is what Christ has done for you. And in that, we demonstrate the grace and mercy we've experienced from God. So let me share with you a personal story of how this has happened for me. Uh, when I, I grew up in a neighborhood with, <clears throat> there's a lot of kids my age, it was a lot of fun. One of my best friends growing up lived like a 20-second walk from where I lived, and so we hung out all the time. Uh, and then we get to high school, and we kind of went down different paths. And so our sophomore, junior year of high school, we didn't hang out much anymore. He was making a lot of decisions, doing a lot of things that I just didn't want to do. 
And so we were friends, like we were friendly, and there's nothing, there's no animosity, it's just we didn't, we weren't, didn't hang out anymore. And then our senior year, the last semester, we were in a math class together, and we were both going to UNC Wilmington, that's where I went to college, and uh, I was going to room with another friend, but he wasn't sure where he was going to go to school yet, and the deadline for housing was coming up, and so my friend that I grew up with, one of my, my best friends, my best friends growing up, he was going to UCW, and so we decided, hey, we both need a roommate, let's live together, no, no big deal. And so we go to UNCW, and we live together, and it was awful. And so he started, first thing happens is he starts doing drugs in our room all the time, and so it stank, always. And it, he was super messy. I was always the one that cleaned up everything, and so that was kind of annoying. And then one day, especially in college, I used cash to pay for everything. I was trying to, you know, use my money wisely, all that. And so when you use cash, and if you're younger, you may not know what this is, but, like, you get coins back. So, like, there's dollar bills, and there's coins. And they're, like, silver, and they're bronze, whatever. And so, you know, unlike like me, if you pay the pizza guy, you, you get coins back. And so, I, you know, what, what you would do is, if you use cash a lot, you would kind of collect all your coins, and then after you got, like, a lot of coins, you'd bring it to the bank, and they'd you'd exchange it out for money. So I had this, like, three-inch by three-inch little t- tub thing that I would put all my coins in. One day I come home, I'm in my room, open, open up my, my drawer in my desk where it was, and they were all gone except the pennies. And I'm like, who? Like, I mean, I don't really care, but, like, what? Like, he also didn't think I would see that. So I asked my roommate, I was like, bro, what happened to my, my change? He's like, oh, sorry, man, I just got really hungry, and so I, you know, bought a bunch of, like, snacks in the vending machine. I'm like, how many snacks did you? Again, no big deal, whatever, you bought, whatever. A couple weeks after that, I come home one day, and I had an envelope uh, full of cash hidden in the back of one of my dresser drawers, and I pulled the envelope out, and it was probably missing 100 bucks, 150 bucks, something like that, and I'm like, I wasn't positive, but I was pretty sure that it was missing the money, that much money, and so long story short, eventually, I confront my roommate. I was like, hey, man, I'm pretty sure I'm missing this much money. It's in this thing. Like, did you take it? And he looks at me, and he's like, no, dude, I didn't take it. Like, I understand why you would ask, and if I were you, you know, I would do the same thing, but I promised you I did, and I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure he took it, but whatever. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. And so at this point, I'm pretty frustrated. We get to the end of the semester, and I've already decided, I've already done the paperwork, whatever. I'm switching roommates for the, for the spring semester. I'm not going to live with them anymore. So that's the last day of, uh, after exams are over, and I'm literally going home for Christmas break that afternoon. I go into my room to, like, get some of my stuff together. And I don't know if it was like this if you went to college, where you went to college, but you could sell your books back to the, to the bookstore. And so I was in a math class with uh, Christina. We were just dating at the time, and she always would write me notes, so I ended up getting a C in the class, so thanks for that. Uh, and so anyway, so the class is over. I'm going to sell that book, sell my books, and I'm going to go home. So I go into my room, go to get the math book, and it's gone. And I'm like, okay. And so I text my friend, my friend I'm like, bro, you, you sold my math book. Like, that's not a question. Like, you literally came and stole. He's like, dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize it. And I'm like, dude, you weren't even in math class. And I know you weren't in math class because I don't do drugs, but I know it takes more than 50 cents to buy, to buy weed, okay? <laughs> and so anyway, so I'm like, dude, you saw, so I was, I was so, can I, can I say that? I don't know. I was so mad. I was, see, I'm dealing with it still. I was so bad. And so I put my phone down, about to leave, and I'm like, well, he still has a bunch of stuff in our room. I'm going to take a bunch of his stuff home and either steal it or sell it or throw it away. But like, he's taken all this stuff from me all semester long. That's what he deserves. What's interesting is I had actually read this text, this Romans text that morning. And as, literally, as I'm trying to decide what to take, I'm reminded that, no, no, we don't repay. If you're in Christ, you don't repay evil for evil. You overcome evil with good. And so I decide not because I'm a great moral person or I'm super strong, but I'm like, no, no, this is what Jesus has done for me. He knows that you're a follower of Christ. He knows that you claim to love Jesus. You need to demonstrate what Christ has done for you to him. 
So I'm, I'm super mad about it, but I don't do anything. I don't take anything. I go home. Well, it's the next semester starts. He doesn't come back to school. He dropped out. He was failing a bunch of his classes. Literally about a year later, that next December, I receive a letter in the mail from my friend. And it was a long letter apologizing. You know, he was in a drug rehab center at the time, and he wrote me a check for like 100 bucks. And he was basically like, look, I know this is not, I know I took more than you, I took more from you than this amount, but this is all I have, and I just want to say sorry. And like the day or two after I get that letter, his dad calls me just to make sure I got it, all that sort of thing. And I said, listen, I, I want you to just tell my friend that I ripped up the letter, or ripped up the, the, the check, not the letter. <laughs> be bad. I ripped up the check. I don't want his money. I, I, I just want him to know that I love him. I want him to know that God loves him. That, that I, don't need any, I don't need him to pay me back. I just want him to know that I have forgiven him because that's what Christ has done for me. And listen, I did not do that because I'm a great person. I did not do that because I just like, well, I'm going to be a really good person. No, the only reason I did that is because I had experienced the reconciling love of Jesus and known that Christ has done this for me day after day after day. And if I am in Jesus, who am I not to share that same love with other people? And if that's true, that this reconciling love of God is so important that I believe it's one of the hardest things that Jesus commands us to do, here's really the bottom text as we close this morning, the bottom line from this text, that's this, that reconciling with others demonstrates what Christ has done for us. We don't do it because God tells us to do it so that he'll love us more, so that we can pat ourselves on the back. No, no, no. We only do it because Jesus came, that the perfect life died in our place, that anyone who trusts and follows him, repents of their sins, and acknowledges their need for Jesus, are what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that you are washed, sanctified, justified, and made righteous, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, we do this to other people to demonstrate, no, 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 we love each other, we give each other grace, we give each other forgiveness, even when we blow it, even if we don't always do it perfectly, because this is exactly what Christ has done for us, and we want as many people as possible to also experience the grace and mercy that Jesus has for us. And if he's done this for us, we can do this for other people. And so as I close, I just have this question for you. Who in your life do you need to reconcile with? Who in your life has wronged you? Maybe again, maybe you were the offender or maybe you were offended. Who do you need to say? Maybe our, the relationship's not going to be the same. Maybe there's going to be boundaries put up, all this sort of thing. But who do you, as far as it depends on you, this week, now you're not going to walk out of these doors and be like, that was a good thing and not do anything about it. No, no, no. Who do you need to call, text, email today to set up a time to talk, to pursue reconciliation as long as it depends on you? And listen, it might even be somebody sitting on the road that you're sitting on. That is who Jesus is. And again, if we, I, I don't want it to be said of New City Church. We're not a perfect church, but we love each other because Christ has loved us. And I would even say it this way. Maybe today is not the day that you need to reconcile with someone else. Maybe today is the day that you need to reconcile with God. As I close, again, maybe you've been coming for a while. You've been hearing this stuff. It sounds good. You need to one day make a decision. Are you in? Do you actually trust Jesus or do you not? So even in the midst of your doubts, even in the midst of your questions, even in the midst of you not having it all together, you need to know that Christ came to reconcile with you. And today might be the day that you need to accept that and start following him. And so I'm going to pray in just a second. The band's going to come up. And if that's you, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me with our eyes closed. Don't say anything out loud. Uh, pray in the quietness of your heart to start following Jesus because this is what Christ has done for us. So let's pray.